Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled Colonial Slavery. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak and turn to the first slide, the slave trade. In January of 1865, General William Tecumseh Sherman and Secretary of War Edward Stanton met in Savannah to query a group of slaves and free people of color about the meaning of freedom and slavery. One 67-year-old Baptist minister, Garrison Fraser, gave as clear a definition as any. Quote, Slavery is receiving by irresistible power the work of another man and not by his consent. Freedom is taking us from the yoke of bondage, placing us where we can reap the fruits of our own labor, take care of ourselves, and assist the government in maintaining our freedom. End quote. I give you this quote so we can get a sense of how the enslaved felt about slavery. And we need to be precise when using this term, as politicians and some media outlets equate everything from health insurance to wearing a mask as being enslaved. Now, before we get into the slave trade, I want to note that for much of American history, slavery was described as a benign institution. And this actually originated from the 17th century and extended all the way to the mid-20th century and unfortunately, to this day in some parts of the country as well. Various people described slavery as beneficial for Africans, saying that it civilized and Christianized them, and that they were treated well. Other modern-day contemporaries say that slavery is not as bad as abortion, drugs, divorce, or even rap music. And this is just ignorant. What I want to illustrate to you today is that slavery is sin, and that it was created through economic need. It was only later on that social, political, and religious justifications were made up to perpetuate and sustain the institution. Religion obviously has many good components and uses, but it also can be used to justify hatred, inequality, and suffering. After all, preachers are just humans. Humans are flawed. And humans can hold contradictory ideas about freedom and slavery. So remember, de omnibus debutatum. Question everything. The slave trade got started because of sugar coming to the Atlantic Islands and later to the Caribbean and coast of Brazil. Convict labor was not enough to sustain the cultivation of this crop, and many people died quickly as a result of tropical diseases. So there is a need for more labor sources to work this crop. Africans, because of their experience with sugar cultivation, and because of various European views about their ability to fight off tropical diseases, as well as ideas about race, soon became the preferred labor source. Slaves were brought to the Americas vis-a-vis -vis the transatlantic slave trade, also called the triangular trade. These slaves were often exchanged for guns, alcohol, and European finished goods. Slaves would then be shipped to the Caribbean, Brazil, and North America. They were purchased with currency, and then set to work on the fields of the various cash crops. Goods sold from North America, Brazil, and the Caribbean were then transported to England, where that money would then be used to buy further slaves from Africa. Now, since there is a good likelihood that your ship may be lost, we see the rise of insurance companies, like Lloyd's of London, to insure slave ships. So, in a very real way, slavery is central to the formation of British capital firms. We also see this greatly increase because of what is called the, quote, asiento de negro, end quote, a monopoly on the slave trade, 
which will provide the profits necessary to help Britain modernize and begin its Industrial Revolution. Most slaves came from the West African coast, from Senegal to Angola. They were originally captured by African coastal tribes who traded them to European and American buyers. Creole Africans with linguistic skills made a great deal of money and power through this trade, and though we may not think it's fair, they believed they were getting the better end of the deal. We estimate that about 20% of the slaves captured by Africans in the interior died en route to the coast, and when combined with the 2 million people killed in slave raiding wars and the 10 to 15 people removed from Africa, you can clearly see that the western coast of the continent was very disrupted and nearly destroyed. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Middle Passage. After slaves were captured, they were brought to giant slave forts along the coast, where they were kept until they were sold to European slave traders. These slave forts kept their defenses pointed out to sea, suggesting that the European slavers were more concerned about competition from other Europeans rather than resistance from various African kingdoms. Most slaves were transported on Portuguese ships until the English took over the slave trade from 1715 to 1807, when they finally abolished it. The middle leg of the journey was called the Middle Passage, and of about 10 to 15 million Africans were sent into slavery, and about 400,000 ended up in North America, with a majority being sent to Spanish and Portuguese South America or to the West Indies. It was a brutal three to six week journey across the Atlantic, and between 20% to one-third of all slaves died on the Middle Passage. European slave traders bought their slaves directly from Africans rather than capturing themselves. The slaves on these ships experienced horrific conditions. Slaves were branded, shackled, and packed onto ships like cordwood. They were whipped, beaten, raped, and murdered in order to show the dominance of the enslavers. Slaves could be chained by the neck and extremities to the deck floor. You were packed into spaces about the size of a coffin. You laid in your own excrement, and people gave birth on the ship, so you would mingle with the blood and placenta of those people giving birth. In some cases, the next deck above the slavehold was only 18 inches above you, so you had to lay on your back the entire voyage. Almost 1 in 10 slave ships experienced some kind of revolt during the journey. So many slave revolts occurred that these ships built fortifications on the deck of the ships as defensive points to stop rebelling slaves. Now, African slaves went through seasoning when they arrived in the Caribbean, which is where you are psychologically and physically tortured until you break down, give up your old identity, you receive a new name, and you are stripped of your heritage. The survivors are eventually sold at slave auction blocks at ports like Newport, Rhode Island, or Charleston, South Carolina. At these auctions, you are forced to jump and dance to show your spryness. You have your teeth checked. Your muscles are poked and prodded like a horse or cattle for sale. The survivors of this process are called the African Diaspora, connected by the experience of the Middle Passage, and they extend from North to South America, the Caribbean, and parts of Europe, the Middle East, and beyond. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The West Indies. Barbados was largely uninhabited when the English arrived in 1627. By the late 17th century, it was the most prosperous colony in the Western Hemisphere. Two-thirds of all English migrants to the Americas between 1640 to 1660 went to Barbados, 
where many never returned. And this is because there was a high rate of death among the indentured servants. And there are few white survivors in order to create a poor, white, landless class. Barbados quickly transitioned to a cash crop economy, using the plantation complex, which focused on sugar production after 1640. Sugar plantations will generate more capital and trade than all other colonies combined. Due to the transatlantic slave trade, 130,000 enslaved Africans were brought to Barbados between 1640 to 1700, and only 50,000 survived. By 1660, Barbados was the first black-majority English colony, with slaves outnumbering whites at a ratio of 3 to 1. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Slavery in the Caribbean. Enslaved people in the Caribbean usually worked on large sugar plantations, and they were engaged in back-breaking gang labor, where groups of enslaved Africans worked at a horrible pace throughout the day from one task to the next. Essentially, slaves are worked to death. It's the economic calculus of the age. It is cheaper to work an African to death and import a new one than to provide that human being with enough food, clothing, and shelter to keep them alive. And that is the problem with any unrestrained economic system, capitalism included. By 1661, Barbados had enacted its first slave code. And why that year? Well, it was one year after the colony had become a black majority, so this was a security measure. Slave codes in the Caribbean doled out harsh punishments for any infraction. Slaves were closely surveilled. They had little privacy or personal space. They had the single worst living conditions, as they were barely provided with any food or shelter. Europeans also refused to Christianize their slaves, so for them, it is more moral to work a heathen to death than a Christian. And this will become the model for Jamaica and for Carolina. Jamaica was founded in 1664 and had become a haven for pirates who attacked Spanish shipping. Planters tolerated these pirates because it kept the Spanish on the defensive and they couldn't reconquer the island. But once British shipping dominated, the pirates were kicked off and the island grew great plantations in their wake. In the Caribbean, in order to maintain production, there needed to be a constant influx of new slaves from Africa, and these have less ties to others, so slave codes become harsher. Despite frequent slave deaths, new imports from Africa kept the slave population high, and fresh migrates and less acculturation and conversion meant that African peoples retained their languages, religions, and customs, albeit at great cost. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Carolina. How do we explain why South Carolina is going to be a pain in the ass for most of our history? Well, it has different demographics, and thus politics. The majority of people coming to South Carolina initially were wealthy planters from Barbados and their African slaves. They would come to dominate local affairs, and they were characterized by ruthless opportunism like Sir John Yeemans, who was a Barbadian planter who had his political rival murdered, and then weeks later, married his widow. Such ruthless opportunism, we shall see, will shape the colony's Indian and African policies, as well as serve as a check to others to prevent a united front that could destroy the colonial venture. In 1670, three ships carrying 200 colonists from the English sugar colony of Barbados arrived and established the city of Charlestown. 
they were closer to Spanish-controlled St. Augustine, only 250 miles away, than they were from Jamestown, 500 miles away. While Jamestown was hidden due to the Spanish threat, by 1670, the Spanish were so weakened that Charlestown could be defiantly planted in land that Spain claimed from themselves. Now, the Spanish did attack and wreck Port Royal in 1686, but the town was quickly rebuilt. Carolina needed to attract people quickly for defense against the Spanish, so they offered a generous 150-acre headright system for every single member of the family who immigrated for no cost whatsoever. In addition, the colony initially allowed religious toleration, an assembly with public taxation and expenditures, and even allows Jews to practice their faith. The incentives worked, and the colony's population rose from 200 people in 1670 to 6,600 by 1700, of whom 3,800 were white and 2,800 were black. Thus, the colony was numerous enough to defend itself against the outnumbered 1,500 Spaniards in La Florida. One-third of these whites came as indentured servants from England or the West Indies, while the remaining were farmers or artisans of modest means from England, the Chesapeake, and the West Indies. Prosperity was attainable if you could survive in the rough, hot, humid, and insect-infested environment. Freedom dues, which we described in a previous lecture, as a set of clothes, a barrel of corn, an axe, a hoe, and 100 acres of land from the Lord's proprietor, were given to indentured servants who survived their terms. And while the death rate was high, the average freeman could attain on average 350 acres of land before his death, so there was an ability to become a common planter. Despite this, great planters dominated the colony since they came with their chattel slaves and could receive 100 acres for every enslaved person forcibly brought to the colony. Large land grants appealed to West Indian and Chesapeake planters who fretted over giving land to their many sons. The wealthy planters proved ever obstinate to the Lord's proprietor, and from 1680 to 1695, 12 different administrators were sent and recalled by the Lords because of their inability to control the planters. Far to the north, around Abel Sound, settlers from Virginia and England disliked being included in this Barbadoan colony of Carolina, and they especially disliked taxes and sometimes violently resisted paying them. By 1691, the Lord's proprietor divided the region into North and South and created North Carolina, which was granted its own assembly and governor by 1712. Thus separated, the wealthy planters further consolidated their power and reneged on their promises of religious toleration. In 1702, they barred non-Anglicans from holding office and made the Church of England the official, tax-supported church of the colony. But the planters were not done consolidating their power. In 1719, the South Carolina Assembly revolted. They seized control of the militia, chose a provincial governor, and sent an agent to the king requesting the proprietors be removed. After about a decade of legal wrangling, the crown bought off most of the lords' proprietors, making South Carolina a royal colony with very little royal authority being exercised over them, as any appointee worked with the planters rather than challenged them. Thus, the great planters had transferred most political power from the proprietors and the crown to themselves, and they would rule the colony as a quasi-feudal estate. The common planters recognized the dominance of the great planters, 
while the great planters recognized that they needed the commoners since they controlled and staffed the militia. Thus, like the Chesapeake, a racial alliance emerged between common and great alike that overrode any considerations of class and power. Please advance to the next slide entitled The Gun Trade. Early on, the colony recognized the best way to manage local natives and to prevent massive runaway communities was to offer guns and ammunition to the tribes in return for them acting as slave catchers and slave raiders. Natives would be granted weapons if they returned escaped slaves or sold other Indians as war captives who were then sold to the West Indies to decrease the likelihood that they would run away or make common cause with enslaved Africans. Rather than undermining security, that trade made natives dependent on Carolinians, as anyone who resisted would see their enemies be given guns and themselves raided and enslaved. Carolinian traders were not interested in conversion or cultural assimilation. They simply wanted economic advantage as the key to their relationship with native peoples. Native Americans hunted deer in great numbers to feed English demand and get access to more weapons and ammunition. From 1699 to 1715, South Carolina shipped 53,000 deer skins a year, worth about 3,000 pounds. This level of hunting was unprecedented in Native society, and Natives eventually ignored the societal taboos of not wasting an animal, leaving the woods filled with skinned, rotting deer carcasses. But the principal commodity traded was people, due to prices paid by traders. While 16 deerskins would get a gun, one captured slave got a gun, ammo, a horse, a hatchet, and a new suit of clothes. Thus, Indians were incentivized to raid for more slaves, get more goods, and more guns, so that they could disperse rival peoples, which made the Carolina planters more secure and provided them with hunting ground for allied native raiders. Indian slaves were sold to the West Indies at a rate of two to one African slave, a recognition of the shorter life expectancy of native slaves. Like the Beaver Wars, slave raiding completely changed the diplomatic and demographic patterns of the Southeast. To briefly illustrate this and the duplicity of the Carolinians, when the colonists first arrived, they made peace with the Kusabo who were fighting the Westo. Then, the Carolinians betrayed the Kusabo and allied with the Westo. Once the Westo had devastated everyone around them, the Carolinians betrayed them and allied with the Savannah. Once the Savannah had outlived their usefulness, the Carolinians turned on them in favor of the Upper and Lower Creeks. The Carolinians then used the Creeks in the 1702-1706 War of Spanish Succession and began raiding into Florida, which decimated their Indian population, dropping it from 16,000 Indians in 1685 to just 3,700 by 1715. Various tribes, like the Savannah and the Tuscarora, attempted to flee the area rather than deal with the Carolinians, but then the Carolinians then went and bribed other tribes like the Catawaba to go and hunt down these peoples. The Carolinian duplicity finally blew up in their faces in 1715, when the Yamasee, who had been allies for decades, refused to give up their children to be enslaved, and a violent war broke out, which lasted for several years. The Yamasees enjoyed some initial successes, killing over 400 colonists and forcing hundreds of refugees into Charlestown. But just like King Philip's War, the natives lost momentum when they ran low on guns and gunpowder, 
and when native allies got in in the fray. The Katawabe, who were allied with the Yamasee, were destroyed by the Iroquois, and then the Cherokee got involved, devastating Yamasee villages. In total, war, disease, alcohol, and slave trading decimated the native populations of the American Southeast. The numbers illustrate this point. In 1700, there were 15,000 natives and 16,000 colonists. By 1730, there were 37,000 whites, 27,000 blacks, and just 4,000 natives. But the Carolinians had learned an important lesson. Unless they wanted large runaway slave maroon communities to exist, they needed to maintain some native allies in the region to continue as slave catchers. So the Carolinians gave a favorable peace, tapered off the native slave trade, and regulated traders to stop abuse while increasing their importation of African slaves. But still, the damage had been done. Between 1679 to 1717, over 51,000 Indians were sold into slavery in the West Indies and beyond. Many natives had learned the lesson as well, of keeping a policy of strict neutrality among the Spanish, English, and the French to get as many presents as possible and avoid such catastrophes. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Carolina Slavery. Slavery in the Carolinas was similar to that in the Caribbean, in that the importation of slaves is what kept the slave population growing. In Carolina, there were large rice and indigo plantations, and 400,000 pounds of these products were sold in 1700, and 43 million pounds were sold by 1740. Britain will grow wealthy on taxing these exports, which are far more profitable than Chesapeake tobacco. As a result of the desire for labor, there is a constant importation of slaves. There were 1,500 slaves in 1690, which went up to 4,100 by 1710. And by 1730, there are 20,000 slaves to just 10,000 whites. In the Carolinas, slaves resisted the gang system because they could easily run away into the Carolina countryside rather than being on an island where there's nowhere to go. So masters implement what is called the task system, which said after every slave's daily task was complete, they were allowed to do other things, like tend to personal gardens or spend time with their families. Slavery in the 13 colonies was harshest in the Deep South, especially South Carolina. There were brutal and isolating conditions in rice and indigo farming, which led to many deaths. However, fresh importation meant that some slaves managed to retain their African languages, customs, and religion at great cost. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Georgia. The colony of Georgia was founded by General James Oglethorpe, who was given a corporate charter to run the colony by the king. Oglethorpe originally wanted the colony to serve two purposes. First, as a refuge for England's poor debtors, which meant that sometimes it was labeled as a prisoner's colony. Second, it would serve as a military buffer zone between Spanish Florida and the rich Carolinas. Due to this, no Catholics were allowed in the colony because of the presence of Spanish Catholics in Florida. In addition, no slaves were allowed until the 1750s, Agus Oglethorpe feared that slaves would make the white farmers lazy or would run away to Florida. Georgia became a very cosmopolitan place, with Austrians, Germans, Swiss, Scots, Jews, and English coming to the colony. By 1750, however, the Protestant settlers wanted slaves in order to become more profitable and petitioned the British to allow this. 
in this case, democracy, stripped freedom, and introduced slavery, an unfortunate, consistent theme in early American history. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Chesapeake. By 1700, the Chesapeake had the most slaves in the North American colonies. These people usually worked tobacco fields, which was not quite as tough as the sugar or rice fields, which made it far less deadly than the Carolinas. Slaves could be sold to neighboring plantations, and plantations were closer together than in the Carolinas, which supported kinship networks between slaves. Slaves could be granted passes to sometimes move between plantations for more contact with friends and relatives. The region also had fewer mosquitoes, which meant less malaria and death. In this region, the slave population grew due to natural reproduction, and slavery grew exponentially in the region after Bacon's Rebellion. As we said in a previous lecture, slaves in 1650 numbered only 300 people. By 1700, it was 13,000 people, or 13% of the population, and by 1750, it was 100,000 people, almost 40% of the population of the state. As Virginia had a self-reproducing population, and the largest number of slaves in any colony, they could embark on another cruel form of economic exploitation, trading slaves to South Carolina and Georgia, especially during the antebellum period. Slaves on the frontier had the toughest lives, cutting down trees, ripping up stumps, and breaking the ground. It was also the furthest you could get from your family, and when tobacco declined in Virginia in the antebellum period, the interstate slave trade would provide great profits for large slave owners of the state and bring misery to numerous African-American slaves. Please advance to the next slide entitled, New England Slavery. Slavery in New England, while cruel, was different from the Chesapeake and the Carolinas. By 1700, there were probably 1,500 enslaved people in New England, representing about 10% of the population. Slaves were critical in the process of colonization, and they performed critical labor. Many worked as domestics or alongside their owners. They rode horses, managed warehouses, were nurses, they dug wells, sailed on ships, and toiled in the fields. They also reflected the cultural understandings of New England Puritans. When one slave was thrown from a horse, he explained it had been spooked by a witch. Slaves were critical to the shipping industry, and were more numerous in the port cities as a result, though they could also be found on the distant frontier. Fewer slaves meant that it was more isolating for them than in the South, and a deep sense of loneliness that is hard for us to imagine ensued. While rape and abuse were common, murdering a slave was not, since it was very costly. As we will see later, by the 1760s, manumissions, or freeing your slaves, were on the rise in New England, and slaves were being freed by masters in their wills and given land, clothing, tools, and sometimes a pension. This reflects changes in New Englanders' understanding of freedom on the verge of the Revolution, but many were also forced out of areas once free, reflecting New England's racial bias. In the aftermath of the Revolution, Indians and African slaves will be purposefully forgotten, as the antebellum period is dominated by debates about the expansion of slavery after 1820, and Northerners will conveniently forget their complicity in slavery and create an idyllic view of a white New England, free of slavery, versus a black South, dominated by the institution. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Slave Codes. As enslaved Africans grew in numbers, threatened whites passed laws to severely control the slave population. 
Contrary to what many people think, the first slave codes originated not in Barbados or Virginia, but in Massachusetts. In 1641, Massachusetts passed its Body of Liberties, which gave legal sanction to certain kinds of slavery based on religion rather than race. The year before, in Virginia, a runaway African indentured servant had been given life enslavement from running away for his masters. By 1662 in Virginia, there was a formal slave code for runaways. Perhaps more important, the 1662 law declared that, quote, Negro women's children to serve according to the condition of the mother, which meant that your freedom status was based on your mother's. It also punished any Christian, meaning white person, who fornicated with a black woman. Now, why is it Christian rather than white? Well, racial ideology is still fermenting. And Christianity is kind of synonymous with whiteness in this era. Now, we see this to be the case in the 1667 law that stated that baptism would not exempt blacks from bondage. Two years later, laws were being made allowing the master to murder his slave. By 1672, the King of England encouraged the Royal African Company to expand the slave trade, resulting in nearly 90,000 Africans coming to the Americas. And this will only increase with the Asiento de Negro when the English take over the slave trade from the Portuguese. Four years after the end of Bacon's Rebellion, we see the first legal codes attempting to constrain any biracial alliances from happening in the future. The 1680 law severely restricted the right to bear any type of weapon on the part of African Americans. It also required passes, permissions, and other restrictions of a black person's ability to move anywhere off of a planter's land. And two years later, in 1682, race was formally codified, equating anything non-white and non-Christian to be judged as enslaved regardless of where they came from. And any mixes of the races by men and women were punishable by jails and fines. Though, of course, these were harsher on white women than on white men, who were and were usually applied on a class basis. Poor whites were punished, but rich planters were not. The 1682 codes were strengthened again in 1705, which would punish any minister who married a white or African-descended person. In 1723, codes banned black meetings, and free blacks were denied the right to vote or have weapons. The process was finalized in 1750, where the distinguishment between slave and servant was absolutely gone, and finally relegated all slaves to a status of chattel, meaning property. Most slave codes also said that it was a crime to teach literacy to slaves, and that conversion to Christianity was not the grounds of freedom. Slavery became the root of racism in America, as a distinct color line was drawn, and codes became harsher over time as slavery became more entrenched, and the notions of inferiority based on the skin color of an individual was embedded in the United States law until the 1960s, and some would say, to this day. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Enslaved Lives. Slaves in the American colonies had a variety of jobs. Most worked in the fields, but there were a number who worked as domestic servants, skilled workers, and free blacks could also work in artisanal positions. Skilled slaves could be hired out to another person to do a particular job. They had to give most of their wages to their owner, but they could keep some for themselves, and some saved up enough to buy their freedom in that of their children and wives. Most skilled slaves worked in urban areas where there also tended to be a concentration of free blacks, 
they were carefully watched and regarded as a threat to the racial order. Slavery was a brutal institution that could break even the toughest people, but slaves were able to maintain some form of identity and sanity by holding on to their cultural traditions and resisting their masters whenever possible. They usually had a strong family structure where possible, though they were also torn from each other's arms. Slaves had a distinctive religion, which often combined African and Christian traditions. Slave culture also became a mixture of American and African folkways. Gula, a language evolving off the islands of South Carolina, was a blended English with several African languages of Igbo, Yoruba, and Hausa. Banjo and bongo drum importations also came to the Americas from Africa, as well as the ring-shout dance, which later contributed to the development of jazz. Many foods and cultural productions we believe to be Southern are in fact African in origin, like okra, barbecue, gumbo, rice, even brewing. Jack Daniels actually got his recipe from a former slave. In addition, jazz, rock and roll, rap, and various dances all have their origins in African traditions, which produced a unique American art form. Africans had numerous methods of resistance, and though these were only small victories, they were still victories of a sort. Slaves could break tools, sing spirituals to slow down work, fake sickness, steal food, or run away. And this would lead to misunderstandings by whites. They would think Africans are stupid because they kept breaking things, or that they were naturally musical because they were singing, or that they had a tendency to be thieves, when in fact, they were just trying to feed their starving families. The last method of resistance is open revolt. And while there are 250 documented slave revolts, there were few successful ones. Please advance to the next slide, entitled The Stono Rebellion. An interesting fact that contributed to the Stono Rebellion is that all members of this freedom-fighting group had fought in one of Congo's civil wars, and when they lost, they had been enslaved and sold to the Americas. In fact, many of these were also Antonians, which is a Christian sect who believed in the second coming of an African messiah. In late 1733, the Spanish king had issued an edict guaranteeing freedom to all slaves who escaped the British colonies and made it to St. Augustine. By 1738, some British slaves had taken advantage of this and had set up a black community just north of the city. By 1739, white South Carolinians, who were a minority in the colony, were in panic, trying to figure out how to prevent their slaves from running away. In August of that year, the newspaper announced a new Security Act, which said that all white men had to carry guns even to church on Sundays or else face a fine, and it was supposed to be implemented on September 29th. However, 20 days before the law's enactment, 20 slaves gathered near the Stone River 20 miles from Charlestown. They went to a powder store, broke in, stole the guns and powder, and executed two workers, leaving their heads on the front steps. The group turned southward towards St. Augustine and attacked a number of homes. As they marched, they beat drums, raised a military standard, and shouted, Liberty! And they were very confident, because official word had reached them of a war between Spain and England, and this may have actually triggered the slaves to act when they did. Well, late one morning, the lieutenant governor came upon this group and rode away to sound the alarm. And for some reason, the slaves decided to stop. And we don't know why. 
Previously, they were described as being drunk, but really they were probably just waiting for more enslaved people to join them, as they had about 60 to 100 members in their ranks. Eventually, the local Carolina militiamen caught up to the freedom fighters, and a pitch battle ensued, which resulted in a draw. The whites did manage to capture some freedom fighters, and according to one account, the militia, quote, cut off their heads and set them up at every milepost they came to, end quote. Evidence suggests that many of the slaves escaped, gained new recruits, and continued marching south because it took perhaps a full month for South Carolina's whites to proclaim that the rebellion was defeated. In fact, one slave leader wasn't captured for three years. Most of these freedom fighters made it to Florida, where they set up a fort near St. Augustine called Fort Mose, or also the, quote, Negro Fort, that will serve the Spanish in future wars. In the aftermath, the South Carolina legislature responded to the revolt by passing the Negro Act of 1740. This curtailed many freedoms that the South Carolina slaves had unofficially possessed, such as the ability to raise crops, get money, assemble in groups, and learn English. As a result, chattel slavery tightened, and white South Carolinians became militant defenders of their institution, which will eventually lead to the American Civil War. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you are staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.